For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Governor Stitt says he has a solution to counter Medicaid expansion. Stitt told local radio station, uh, told a local radio station, Medicaid block grants are the way to go instead. He says the lump sum of federal money would go to providing health care to low-income residents, but the governor's office declined to elaborate on Stitt's comments. Neva, what do you think of the governor's idea? Well, I think uh, he's tossed something out there. Clearly, this is an idea that uh, some states have taken a look at. Uh, Tennessee seeking to be the, the, the first. But the, um, uh, the specifics are what I think a lot of legislators and others uh, really want to see. We may still have some time before that happens. It's interesting, though, the political climate... Um, for Republicans, even even with the Trump administration uh, being very supportive of, of the concept of the block grants, being able to get something like that through Congress and getting the approval, given the House being controlled by Democrats, uh, with their kind of jaundiced eye on uh, what what block grants uh, do and, and their estimation versus what uh, many uh, uh, conservative conservative members in the House and others believe would be a positive. I, I think I think it's going to be this fight back and forth, and where the the governor kind of weighs in and how strongly he wants to put a plan forward. Uh, we've got, uh, there are several uh, court, courts now uh, that are already looking at this uh, ACA-related uh, uh, test. So there's a lot of court challenges that uh, many believe will uh, ensue. And so I think the devil will be in the details. Ryan. Well, this, you know, we've been waiting for months now about what the governor's competing plan with Medicaid expansion that's most likely going to be on the November 2020 ballot, what his competing plan was going to be for that. And this really isn't a competing plan because it, it's not a, it's not one way of Medicaid expansion versus another way of Medicaid expansion. A block grant is completely different. And, and in fact, you know, the way the block grant could work is it could actually end up covering fewer people at some point and covering fewer services and leaving people without health care when they desperately need it. That's not really a competing plan for what the folks at the ballot measure are going to roll out. And like Neva said, you know, they're may need to be congressional action. I mean, the, the administration has said, you know, the, the Trump administration has said that they're amenable to these block grants that would go to the states rather than the current we pay per user in the Medicaid system, but like a flat rate. That's really contrary to the federal law around Medicaid right now. And so the administration can waive that all day long, but it's going to be subject to lawsuits. And so Oklahomans that are desperate to have some sort of Medicaid expansion, or even folks if they thought that this was Medicaid expansion, the governor's plan would likely take a very long time to implement and roll out, and that's and that's like that's if they could overcome the legal challenge, which I don't think they could. And I think Neva's right; getting something through Congress on this deal seems impossible right and, now. And Speaking you of know, getting something through Congress, you also have to get through something through how, the that's, House. That's, that's, that's right, and I think and I think you know it, the issue with uh, block grants. I mean, in in the estimation of um, you know many folks, and particularly Republicans, have always had this as a uh, by and large a very appealing idea because it gives more flexibility in how you can operate a program. Whether we're talking Medicaid programs or other programs that the federal government has used the block grant. Uh, idea as something to implement, I think states have found that it gives them flexibility, it gives them the ability in their own state to create something that fits 
fits for their specific state as opposed to something that's blanket across uh, all states. So the idea of the block grants has extreme merit. It's just now the political, you know, the political minefield that uh, everyone's going to have to uh, figure out how to navigate if, in fact, they can make it become a reality. And the argument against that flexibility is that the the Congressional Budget Office, when they've reviewed the proposal of block grants, because this has been in front of the United States Congress before, it hasn't passed out of the House. And and I think even with Republican majorities, they weren't able to, to get it out of the House. When the Congressional Budget Office looked at this, they said that the flexibility often works against the people in the state, though, the, the people that rely on Medicaid, because it, incre- it encourages states to restrict enrollment, limit mandatory and optional benefits, decrease already low reimbursement rates, and then or some combination. And then you end up in a situation, too, where right now the state of Oklahoma gets reimbursed you know, basically 66% of every person that's enrolled in Medicaid. So that number goes up and down with enrollment. With a block grant, you get a set amount. And so if you have a situation where you have a, a, a spike in the, in the need of uh, people that go on Medicaid, the mm-hmm. state could have fewer dollars to actually spend on that. And that could be a natural disaster. That could be any number of things. And so that's uh, the, the flexibility may sound good, but ultimately it works against the patients. And I think ultimately the other thing that we have to keep in mind is the legislature is going to have to ultimately deal with this in the coming session, whatever the governor's plan, because it's incumbent upon them to be able to do something if they want to counter the state question that will be on the ballot likely in November 2020. Criminal justice reform advocates are working to get signatures on a petition to end certain sentence enhancements for nonviolent offenses. If passed by voters, it would keep judges from increasing sentences because of prior convictions. Ryan, what do you think of this petition? Oh, I think it's outstanding. I think that it's a building block on what the ACLU and our allies uh, across the political spectrum worked on to get uh, with State Question 780 and State Question 781 and the subsequent measures that have passed the legislature since then, including House Bill 1269 that Governor just the governor just signed that allowed close to 500 people uh, commuted on the, the largest single day of commutations in nation's history. This is just another road uh, stepping stone and the path towards a more responsible criminal justice system. You know, Oklahoma has one of the, the biggest incarceration rates and people often say, well, what makes this different? And you really begin to drill into the details. You know, we have 70% longer prison sentences for property crimes, 79% longer prison sentences for drug crimes. That's in spite of the reforms that we've done. And a lot of it has to do with these sentence enhancements because what they do is they give uh, prosecutors uh, this enormous amount of leverage. They can add decades or even life in prison uh, to people that are serving uh, that are being convicted of minor drug and property crimes. I mean, that's that's an enormous amount of leverage. I think Oklahomans say if you've paid your debt to society, you're done there. If you get in trouble again, we're going to judge you on the merits of this particular crime. But to add these huge sentences on top of people, that's one of the real reasons that we've got the incarceration crisis that we have in Oklahoma. Neva. Well, I think uh, I think clearly there is this momentum that we've seen as a result of all the things that you just outlined, Ryan. But uh, it will be fascinating to see. We know that uh, m- many of these types of uh, proposals, from the legislative standpoint, have had very little traction. I mean, the, and part of that has been the uh, extreme pushback by the DAs and law enforcement across the state when these proposals and legislation have. Uh, have come up. So again, we'll see in this next legislative session, all of these issues that are being pushed as constitutional measures, as as votes uh, for the people to, to decide, uh, it also swings back to the lawmaker side of what do they want to do in terms of public policy and how much they want to engage in, in this debate. I mean, they've they've had this, this is not a new discussion. This is an ongoing discussion. Um, and we'll see whether the uh, Oklahomans for Sentencing Reform, this 
coalition can uh, you know be a a more effective driver w- with the narrative at the legislature or whether they will see uh, a more concerted effort on the other side to kind of push back so uh, I you know I think I think it's this uh, I think it's this give and take and I think the public is uh, by and large you know uh, going to pay a lot of attention to the details on this because they've demonstrated uh, that they are very interested in seeing uh, these reforms but they also want to see the results behind the reforms and I think that's that's going to be the thing that we'll uh, begin to point to in the next year or two. And if you look at the polling on, on just this ballot measure itself, uh, you know, the coalition's putting out numbers that show that two-thirds of Oklahomans, 66% of Oklahomans voters support the, the concept in this ballot measure. I mean, so it's starting off with an overwhelming amount of support, and that'll probably go down with some with the negative attacks from DAs and law enforcement that are defenders of the status quo, uh, and that's unfortunate, but it, that'll come down. But I think that this has a strong chance of passing, and, and because it has a strong chance of passing, one of the collateral attacks that we're going to see this legislative session, and I think it's going to be led by the State Chamber of Commerce, is an attack on the initiative and ballot, uh, the initiative process itself. I think that the State Chamber and their allies, possibly dis- district attorneys and county sheriffs, are going to try to take that constitutional right away from the people or to modify it in some way to make it harder for coalitions like this, big bipartisan coalitions, to come to Together and push reforms that the legislature won't do themselves, and in some ways that the legislature wants. They want this to happen so that they feel like they've got political cover to do more. That's what we saw coming out of State Question 780. But look for an attack on the initiative petition process this legislative session. That's what I was going to get to, because it does seem like for years, almost everything that was on the ballot all had to come out of the state capitol. But recently, medical marijuana, state the expansion of of Medicaid, uh, ballot measures, the redistricting. All of a sudden, it seems like the people are going, you know what, if if the lawmakers aren't going to do it, we are. And voters love it. I mean, if, if you talk to people out there signing these petitions, getting involved in these petition campaigns, talk to the people running the Medicaid expansion, the number of volunteers that they had come out of the woodwork saying, I'm not a paid political operative. I've never done this before, but this is a way that I feel like I can be directly involved in the democratic process. I mean, that's across the board, Republicans, Democrats, independents, everybody I think likes this except for, uh, you know, a handful of folks that, that feel threatened, feel like they can't win the issue whenever it's directly in front of the voters. And that's where I think we're going to see this fight against the initial Well, and I, and I think ultimately, whether whatever faction we're talking about, ultimately it will be the responsibility of the voters that's to make right. that decision. Yeah. And it's their responsibility to decide who they want to represent them in the in the uh, Oklahoma legislature as well. So, you know, if we can up the uh, uh, kind of up the game in terms of the uh, involvement of uh, uh, citizens across the state of Oklahoma, that's a that's a gain for all of us. The state insurance commissioner says he won't enforce a newly enacted law. Glenn Mulready says because of legal challenges, he won't cite violators of the law giving patients the right to choose a pharmacy provider. Neva, this measure was passed by Republicans and eventually signed by Governor Stitt, but it's not been halted by the courts. No, but you've had you've had the courts overturn in two states and you have a third that uh, is still under challenge. So, I mean, the the trend is certainly in that direction. And I think uh, even uh, the insurance commissioner, the the first uh, proposal, the legislation that passed that was vetoed by the governor because he said basically that uh, we're going to be that this is going to wind up in in the courts uh, and be struck down um, then they came back with a different version and and were able to subsequently pass it and he signed it but again they're kind of back at the same place that they were before it looks like uh, you know for the most part and when you're talking about specific federal laws they do supersede Oklahoma law and you've got you've got these issues with these benefit programs uh, where you are trying to uh, regulate benefit 
benefit packages in a way that uh, uh, that is uh, that has been struck down as not being constitutional. So there's some real issues here, and I think uh, from the insurance commissioner's perspective, he's being judicious uh, from his office standpoint and not going above and beyond or overreaching and spending money and unnecessarily doing things until there is a clear uh, a clear uh, uh, decision made that uh, is going to stand. So uh, you know, again, the complexity of this, but the legislature, I mean, kind of being pushed around ultimately by small town pharmacies across Oklahoma, really a relatively small group of people really pushing back on a much broader uh, network of people that uh, were being affected across the board insurance wise. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think that the commissioner's right and, and, and not moving forward right now, because this is what, if you begin to enforce that action, and then ultimately, like Neva, you said, I mean, I think that the, the case law on this seems to suggest it's probably going to be struck down, at least in, in part, uh, by, by, by courts whenever they get to the point of reviewing that. And so, you know, if you begin to enforce that right now, trying to roll that enforcement back, that becomes a really complicated, complex effort in and of itself. And so open, it, open to more litigation. Yeah, yeah open to more <laughs> litigation. And so, you know, hitting the pause button right now, you know, you know, paging Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, Medicare for all. I mean, it, we talk about these pharmacy benefit managers. We talk about the, the middlemen that exist between insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies, and then the, the largest distributors and chain distributors in the country. And, you know, full disclosure, my wife works for one of those. Uh, but, but I mean, I tell you, you know, when, 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 when Oklahomans and Americans are struggling with, with drug prices, um, I, I understand the, the impetus of the legislature. I understand the impetus for small-town pharmacies that are trying to compete with the bigger chains and to provide real services in, in those rural areas in particular. I mean, I, man, I get it. But the, the answer, I think, may not have to come from the state legislature. It's probably going to have to come from, Cong from Congress. And, and it also might deal something that you've got to still make sure that you do something that's legal within our, 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 our laws and our constitutions. Yeah, yeah, Medicare for all. <laughs> after, uh, <laughs> sure. Um, okay. After multiple delays, Oklahoma. And I'll tell you how we'll pay for it. That's the. <laughs> Are you announcing for a president? Yeah, really. Well, the deadline. Oh, sure. de de I think deadline's uh, today, so we'll see. Just when we thought we all had enough of it. Just in. when we thought. Well, after multiple delays, Oklahoma is finally complying with nearly 15-year-old federal law. State officials plan to start rolling out real IDs by the spring and be in full compliance by October, allowing residents to board a plane or enter a federal building. Ryan, although you originally supported real ID, you have since changed your opinion. I have changed it. my mind. It's the you know, you know shocking. You know everybody everybody driving their car right now. Hold on to the steering wheel. Politician changed their mind. No, I I did. I I supported this. I thought it was a good deal. But then when you start to look at, I mean, look, I mean, I, I don't have the exact figures, but the amount of money that the state of Oklahoma has spent trying to twenty one million twenty one million dollars. Twenty. Think of tw the way that we could spend twenty-one million dollars in the state of Oklahoma right now. We're trying to comply with a, a law, a federal law that does the only thing that it really accomplishes is that it creates a liability for our privacy. Uh, but the actual security that it's going to provide for Americans just really doesn't exist. It's phony. It, you know, it's kind of a feel-good measure that made us feel better about our security, especially when we're flying in the in the years following 9-11. But that was just, you know, you know, that was just a fiction. It doesn't really exist. We spent $21 million to get into compliance. And frankly, the state of Oklahoma could have spent $0. We could have never come into compliance with this. And I, I think that we'd get extensions for the, for the rest of, uh, for the rest of the Republic. I mean, we would, we wouldn't, they're never going to really enforce this because cranking down on that and making people comply with real ID would disrupt so much commercial activity in, in the United States. You know, the state's going to be in compliance now. 
I, I wish that we would have just kept the money in our back pocket and tell them to keep giving us extensions. <laughs> Neva. <laughs> well, I think uh, I think the fact that in mid-December or by mid-December, a uh, very comprehensive marketing plan, they have said, will be rolled out. And it is going to take an education process. Mm-hmm. This is a, a whole new uh, a whole new method of getting a license when you have to have proof of identity like your driver, uh, birth certificate or passport, it's a social security number, you have two proofs of residency. Uh, I mean, there's some there's some things there that uh, just the Joe Joe Oklahoman mm-hmm. is going to have to know to be able to uh, to go in and get a license. They'll now get a temporary license, uh, and then the 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 actual license will be mailed. I mean, there's some new things uh, uh, in in line, and the 4250 uh, price tag uh, that will be across the board mm-hmm. uh, uh, for your uh, for your license. But the long and the short is what Ryan said. It is here. It's here to stay. Uh, it, it was a long time coming in Oklahoma, but uh, now we have it, and it will be fully rolled out in. Implemented and by the uh, end of 2020, I mean whether it's uh, a whatever number of the 650,000 uh, uh, state residents that uh, r- will need some sort of identification and license, and if they want to be able to uh, uh, to go through a TSA check or do something, they are ultimately going to be required to have uh, uh, to have a real ID to be able to uh, board a plane, or go into a federal or building, or a, or a yeah. passport. But you know the likelihood if they don't have one, they're not going to have the other. So, uh, mm-hmm. um, but the these things, uh, these things will be interesting to see from an implementation standpoint because right now only Oklahoma City and Tulsa areas will be uh, where they will have uh, the facilities, and then they'll have to roll in these other DPS uh, sites across the state. And I think that is into the spring of next year. I'm, I'm a curmud- I'm a curmudgeon on this deal. I'm going to have the, the old license because you can still get the old license. I'm going right, to use the old right. license. I'm going to use my passport and protest. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's it's going to make all the difference in the world. Which, which adds <laughs> the question: Could there be a political backlash to this? I, mean, I I think that when people, I mean, we're already There'll seeing be political frustration. Yeah, I mean, anytime we we've created this huge new bureaucracy that's cost you know twenty one million dollars, all for paying for a false sense of security. I, I think that we're so attenuated away from like the idea that this gives us any security. Most people don't even you know connect the dots between this and uh, uh, airline safety after nine eleven, flying safety after nine eleven. They it's so attenuated from that that you know there there's not a real political benefit sitting out there. So yeah, twenty one million dollars new bureaucracy, and we're already seeing uh, a lot of political frustration about the closure of. Uh, drivers testing places, uh, get to where to get your driver's license. You know those things in rural areas in particular. That's already become an actual hardship uh, for people. Well, so, and there will be kids who are going to be getting a real ID who weren't even born when uh, when when nine eleven happened. That's yeah. true. That's true. And you know, for the state, I mean, the idea now that they have to maintain, scan, and store all of these documents, there's the added expense mm-hmm. ongoing, long term that's going to be required. Uh, to do that. So there are a lot of, as, as with anything that uh, comes with the new, there are a lot of, lot of underlying strings attached that have to be accommodated. And, and you know, good job to Secretary Keating for getting it done. You know, congratulations on getting it done. I wish you didn't have to, but congratulations on, 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 on being <laughs> the person that says that, that it got done. Tulsans overwhelmingly supported the renewal of a plan to use city taxes for municipal improvements. More than 85% of voters approved $427 million for streets and transportation projects. Nearly 82% supported $193 million for capital projects. And almost 80% passed the proposition pulling, putting $19 million into the city's rainy day fund. Neva, are you surprised by these results? No, I'm not. And I think the mayor, I mean, what he said was uh, was really the, the, the key point in the uh, improve our 
Tulsa Renewal mm-hmm. uh, a package, and that was that uh, despite uh, despite a lot of the you know consternation in politics and a lot of the the differing opinions and and sometimes the lack of civility. In this instance, I mean, this is another example of a major metropolitan community coming together, you know, focusing on the positives of putting a package together that they could communicate to the voters. You know, this is, uh, and and clearly, you know, when you look at it, the voters, the majority of this money is going to street improvements, uh, something that uh, that the voters are willing to spend money on, infrastructure and streets and the things that they care about. And the second part, uh, the biggest part of the uh, uh, package was uh, for things like uh, uh, things like many of the, the Gilcrease Museum and the zoo and the cultural, the Greenwood Cultural Center, the Animal Welfare Shelter. Again, projects that the community and the people paying for it uh, want to see upgraded, benefited, uh, their city parks as well. So I, I don't think it's any, I don't think it's any surprise. I think it, uh, they should be applauded for their effort in bringing everyone together and doing it in such a way that there is just overwhelming support, which is really the key to, to these kind of proposals. Ryan, having a super majority on these really gives Tulsa the, the, right. the, the, the push to, to keep doing these and, and feeling good about it. Well, and I, th- I think it, it fights back the narrative that everybody's against taxes, the voters are against taxes, because what we've seen in, in Tulsa, what we've seen with maps, um, and you know, those are initiatives that have been, you know, if you look at the people at the at the helm of that, Republicans. Mm-hmm. I mean, Republicans and municipal government, uh, you know, Republicans at state government, no taxes, no taxes, no revenue, no taxes, no revenue, and or, or if you do get it, I mean, it takes you, you know, five or six years to get there, and you pull a bunch of teeth, uh, and everybody feels real painful over it. But the municipal level. You know, I think that there's a sense by these leaders that, you know, the idea that voters will support taxes if they feel like they're going to be spent in a responsible way, if it's going to be an investment in their community. And so, I mean, I think that that's an important narrative. And another thing that we got to talk about is the incredibly low voter turnout. Right, yes. 14% of of the registered voters there. So 29,000 votes out of 201,000 folks eligible to vote in the city of Tulsa. I mean, so about... You know, 14% of people chose how to spend nearly three quarters of a billion dollars. I don't blame the proponents at all for that. I mean, you know, I, I applaud them for their campaign and for putting this together and for investing in their community. But we have got to find a better way uh, to conduct these elections, whether that's like putting them on with, with other elections so that we're not having a special one thing for people to come out, doing vote by mail, have, you know, all sorts of things that we know have worked in other states and other jurisdictions to increase voter turnout. We got to do it here because 14% of people participating in big decisions like that, that's, that doesn't and cut And that's it. just 14% of the registered voters. Of not the registered 40, voters, I mean, The yeah. total population of Tulsa, that's a very small amount. It is, but but we have uh, 50 to 60% of the people deciding, you know, who they want to be president of the United yeah. States. Yeah. I mean, we cannot impose that, you know, you are going, we're going to beat you over the head enough that you're going to, you, you are going to figure out and go vote even though, even if you don't know what you're voting on. I mean, these people clearly had an opinion, went out and expressed it at the polls for or against. And I think, again, one of the important takeaways from this election is that it was a renewal. I mean, just like MAPS and just like uh, Improve Our our Tulsa, uh, what we see here is when city leaders follow through and do what they say, then the voters have confidence and they will continue to follow uh, responsible projects and programs uh, and initiatives that they put forward. And I think that's the very positive takeaway, both for Tulsa and Oklahoma City, that uh, that they can be very proud of. Do you think this gives hope for the vote for, for the officials in Oklahoma City for MAPS 4? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, we're, you know, Tulsa and Oklahoma 
city. I mean, you know, sometimes they're they're uh, you know, sister cities, and other times they they could be countries they, they on foreign continents, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, but I, I do think that there is uh, that this is a really good snapshot of just voter attitudes towards taxes that they believe invest in their communities, and you know, I think that this probably bodes well for the folks that are running the maps campaign. I would agree, and yeah. I think the December tenth election uh, will will again be a referendum on what's been done in the past, mm-hmm. and I think what we're seeing, as we talked about um, more than once on the program, is it's it's the composite view of how to move forward. You know, while you might not like every single piece or every single part of the uh, of the uh, proposition or the the different issues that are being voted upon, you at least know know specifically what they are and can make your decision accordingly. Yeah. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management. <laughs>